If um, you're visiting with us today and you don't know who I am, besides the guy on the floor with the kids, um, I'm Pastor Randall Kay. I'm the interim pastor here. And for those of you who are watching online, uh, thanks for doing that. And I hope you feel a part of what is happening inside here. Um, so anyway, we are blessed today um, to have uh, Reverend Rick Eshbaugh. Uh, he is the district, I'm going to get this right, the district minister. Um, in my old denomination, we call it the, super, the superintendent. I like district minister better. Um, but he uh, watches over us as part of the Mennonite Brethren Church in uh, what we call our central district, which takes up a number of the states like North Dakota and South Dakota and Nebraska and Minnesota and Iowa, Wisconsin. So he gets around a lot. So anyway, we are thankful that he was able to come today, even on the icy roads, uh, to bring us a report of what's happening uh, in God's uh, part of the world that we call the Mennonite Brethren, and um, also to bring us, maybe even more importantly, a message from God's Word. So um, listen carefully, because God's got something for you this morning, I am sure. Brother Rick, it's all yours. I always like applause at the beginning because I rarely get it at the end. So <laughs> it is so good for me to be here. I enjoy coming here so much. Uh, today was just a little bit on the difficult side. The roads are just a little bit slick. Uh, but you know, I was reminded of a uh, young man who thought that he knew how to drive. And of course, uh, he was driving a little faster than he should. He slid off into the ditch and the front of his car gouged the side of the embankment. And when he got out to look at the damage, he discovered that there was a lamp. Uh, you know, one of them uh, lamps, you know, where if you rub it, the genie comes out. And sure enough, he did. He rubbed it. And sure enough, a genie come out. And the genie looked around at the, at the lamp and noticed that he had put a big dent right there in the side of that, that lamp. And the genie said, you know, normally I grant three wishes, but because you dented my lamp, I'm only going to give you one. And the young man said, boy, I wished I was a better driver. And poof, he was. The genie turned him into a woman. All right, so, <laughs> yeah. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Nobody wants to admit it. Okay. Because the next question, how many of you are still keeping them, right? They tell me that it takes about six weeks for a new habit to begin to take root in our lives. And so doing my math, and today's the 16th, so therefore you ought to be in week three. You ought to be about halfway through or coming up on that. You're, you should be making progress in terms of your New Year's resolutions, and I think for me, one of my New Year's resolutions, I went back and I looked at what they were in 2021 and to see how I had done. And I found that sometimes the motivation for our New Year's resolutions basically come in three categories. Either we're forced to do it, we don't have any choice. Uh, my wife received a puppy for my birthday present. And so she is uh, trying to train this puppy. And sometimes she tries to do it by force, right? Right? 
make the dumb, the, the puppy do what it's supposed to do and to go where it's supposed to go, those kind of things. Oftentimes we do it because of positive reward. We know that we will do this if we change our lives, our habits, somehow or another it'll make us better, it'll make us richer, healthier, whatever it might be. And sometimes we do it because of negative reasons. We know that if we continue doing what we're doing, it's not going to turn out well. And so there's a desire that we have in our hearts to make a change. But what is the motivation? And the best motivation is that of positive what is it that God would have us to do? What is it that God needs us to do? And when I look back at my 2021 resolutions, part of it was, yes, I needed to work on my health. Uh, some of you have already commented that I don't look like I did when I came here probably a year ago or when you saw me a year ago. And, and that's good, I think. You know, they keep telling me I'm looking good, which makes me feel that I guess I wasn't looking that good a year ago, right? I mean, that's... But part of it was, again, the negative and the positive. I went to my doctor, and my doctor says, uh, your diabetes is just out of control. And we have to do something. He had already had me on these super-powered drugs, and one of them was like $1,100 a month, right? That was expensive. I met my deductible pretty quick. And that was one of those negative motivations. I'd like to get, I would like to, I've not had to take it uh, so I could save some money. But what he told me, he says, Rick, he says, you're going to have to do a couple of things. Either we're going to have to increase your medications, we're going to have to do something because your A1C was growing. He said, another option is to have gastric bypass surgery. And you know, it's something, you know, for them uh, to make that acknowledgement to you and say, you're going to have to have surgery that's going to alter your life. It's kind of a forced change in your life. And he said, but if you don't, the likelihood of you having a stroke, the likelihood of you having a heart attack, the likelihood of all of these negative things, he says, on the path that you're going, you need to change. And so I did. On March 24th, I went through gastric bypass surgery, and now I'm half the man I used to be. Yeah. I hope it's the right half, right? So, yeah. So change sometimes is forced upon us. But there's also a change that we desire because we sense that God wants to do something deeper and more meaningful in our lives, and he's calling us back. And for me, part of what my resolution was is I, I work with a number of immigrant churches. In fact, in our district, uh, I think we've got 38, 39 churches. 39, okay. You know, I lose count because we gained two and we lost one, and I was just trying to do the math in my head, and... And I got to 20,000, I think, so, but, you know, but anyway. But about a third, 13 of our churches are immigrant churches. And I was trying to understand how we can minister to them because they are so uh, hungry to, 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 to learn and to grow and to be a part. And they, they face some unique challenges. And there is a book that I found called The Bible and Borders. And it's a really a good book by Daniel Carroll. And it talks about how the Bible is filled with moments of immigration, moments where, where God was moving his people in various times. And the circumstances and the events that they were going through challenged them in terms of their walk with the Lord. And so what we come to find out in this book is that as we are immigrants, we are always butting up against the majority culture. 
And that's exactly what we find here in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church there at Ephesus. And about halfway through the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm supposed to be advancing the slide. I don't know why I'm looking up there. Okay. Hey, I did it. All right. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this, this wonderful little segue. He goes from the theology that he's been working on in the first half of the book, and now he kind of moves to some more of the practicality. But this is what he writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is by far one of the very first creeds of the early church where Paul calls it out and he says there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now Paul, we all know who Paul is, right? Everybody kind of remembers Paul being the apostle that is known to uh, be the minister to the, to the Gentiles, and Paul wrote the book of Ephesians at about A.D. 60, and that's important for us to kind of keep in mind. And in Philippians chapter 3, 4 to 6, he kind of gives his pedigree. He talks about how he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was trained under Galileo, and he was one of these guys that, that understood the law and was there to protect the law. We know him as Saul, the persecutor of the church. And because of that persecution, we know that the early church was spread out. It was what we call a diaspora. The church that had been mostly focused there in Jerusalem was chased out. And they were being sought after. And we, and we know that Stephen was stoned and that they laid uh, their robes at the feet of Saul, who was the one responsible in orchestrating the persecution. And so we know that he was a Jew of all Jews. That was his background and his training. But God had something different in store for him. And we don't have time to go through everything that we know about Paul. But we, we know, of course, about the conversion on the Damascus Road. And that was in Acts 9. We believe that that was around AD 34-ish. Uh, he had his first missionary journey in 46 to 49. There was a Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And that took place about AD 49. All right, so we know that Christ was on the cross about AD 33, so we're not going to focus on the date much, but I want you to catch, if you will, a sort of a general understanding of what the world was like. And so we see that Paul became a Christian. He met Jesus there on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. In Acts 15, they are now wondering, what do we do with the Gentiles who are now coming into faith in Jesus Christ. Do Gentiles have to become like Jews? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to observe the law? Do they have to do all of the things that we have been taught? And what they're finding out is that God has given to them the same spirit and they are told that they do not need, in fact, that there is now a body of Christ. 
It is no longer a Jewish faith. It is no longer a faith that is focused on the temple, but is focused singular on Jesus Christ. And we are saved by grace. And so Paul goes out on his second missionary journey. He stops briefly in Ephesus during that time, about AD uh, 49 to 52. But he comes back on his third missionary journey in AD 53 to 57. And he spends three years with the church there at Ephesus. And we know also that he was in prison, that he was writing the Ephesians uh, AD 60. We also know that the persecution of that time was rising. Uh, it wasn't just from the Jews who didn't like Christians, but now it was also even the Romans themselves because they had an, a worship of the emperor. And of course, the Christians weren't going to bow down and call him God. And so there was actually persecution. And when the great fire of Rome that went through and burned down the city, more or less, uh, the Christians were blamed. And so we know that Paul and probably Peter at the same time uh, lost their lives probably sometime after AD 64, between 64 and 68. And so that's a brief outline about Paul. But what I want you to catch is that there is so much change that is taking place in Paul's life. There is so much turmoil that is taking place in his world. And there is a lot of questions about who is the true God. And this is why he was writing to them. And so, you know, you, you've got the map, right? So you can kind of focus in a little bit. It's kind of hard to see. I don't know if the laser works. I'll try it. Yeah. So Ephesus, where did it go? There it is, right up here. Okay. And, and so that's in modern day Turkey. And what was unique about Ephesus was that it had one of the seven wonders of the world there. There was a temple to Artemis. Uh, the, the Greeks actually uh, also considered it Diana would be one of their gods, their pantheistic uh, approach. But the temple of Artemis was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and it had columns. There were 17 columns, and it says that those columns were 62 feet tall. All right? And what was unique about this is that they believed that there was a God that came to them and this is what Artemis would look like. Uh, and it, it, they were saying that it fell from the heavens. And so they created this temple, or did they have the temple, and Artemis fell into it? There's some little bit of ambiguity there. But the idea was that this was this great temple to Artemis. And everybody in town was, was following after Artemis. The Gentiles, this was their religion. This is what they were believing in. It was a fertility cult. And we won't go into all that that means, but we know that this was uh, something that was quite contrary to the teachings that Paul was giving. And he was there for three years, preaching and teaching and modeling, and there were all kinds of things that took place that was taking place there. Now, it kind of upsets some of the people. We, again, you know, we can talk about some of these things, but in Acts chapter 19, we find that the silversmith guild actually rose up because they said, Paul is teaching these things that are going to be contrary to the commerce that we have at Artemis. Artemis is going to be defamed, and if Artemis is defamed, then we won't have a job. And so they, they kind of got everybody up in an uproar and they, they sought to run them out of town because they didn't want this message being preached. This was the city of Ephesus and this is to whom he was writing. 
And so when we see this passage again from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we can unpack it because he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. We know he's in prison. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This idea of walking talks about following a path of being a representative. And calling here is not like the calling that sometimes pastors will say, you know, I felt called to go into ministry. This is the call to come and be a part of God's kingdom. This was a call that they were to be part of the body of Christ, the church. And the book of Ephesians is one of those books that speaks to us a lot about the body of Christ being the church. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, I want you to walk with all humility and gentleness. Now, why would humility and gentleness be important? Well, part of some of what was taking place, if you can imagine this, the church at Ephesus was made up primarily of Gentiles who, like I said, probably were followers of Artemis before their conversion. Also, there were Jews who were there. And now can you imagine how that must have been feeling for them to come together and to try and worship together? Try to pick out hymns from that group, right? Yeah? Tell me how it would go when you started talking about the color of the carpet or, or whether or not we have trifold bulletins or not. All of these things that are important to us, can you imagine trying to do that? In that kind of diversity that was taking place there. And so he says to all of them, walk with humility and gentleness with one another. Because we're under persecution, we need to stay together because we have to hold on to what is central. And he says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. They had nowhere else to go. It wasn't like they could pack up and go someplace else. They were there in Ephesus, and it was their church. It, it was where they attended. It was, it was the people that they met with. And he says, bear with one another in love. This idea that sometimes, once we find out that there's something that we disagree with, we, we tend to kind of separate ourselves. And he says, bear with one another. Have the intent to be together and to love, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And there is this theological statement. It says there's only one body, and it's spread out throughout the United, oh, United States, the world. Paul would tell them about the stories of where else he had been. The stories of, of Galatia and Philippians and all of these different places, not Philippians, Philippi. And he says, just as there is one body and one spirit, and just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, this idea that there is one spirit is very important because the spirit is spoken about several times in the book of Ephesians. He says, just as you were called to this one hope, that is of Jesus Christ, that belongs to your call, there's one Lord, there's one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Right? Most of the gods of that day needed to be tended to. You would go and tend to the needs of the God. And if you didn't satisfy the God, the God might not give you a good crop or whatever else it might be. The idea that the God needed to be tended to. 
And they would sell these images and you would go home and you would have those idols in your home. And the, and the silversmiths, they got upset when they started talking about them not being that important or, or that powerful. But our faith is different. There is not an idol. It is the living Christ who was resurrected, who died on the cross for our sins, who created a new covenant that was different than the old covenant that is based on grace and not upon works. All of these things are written into this statement. One baptism is a, is a call of commitment. My wife's middle name is Zarina. Isn't that, isn't that great? Yeah? She doesn't like her initials either, but that's okay right? But Zarina was a lady that, that, that uh, was baptized in Pakistan. She grew up in Pakistan. And her dad was a missionary. And in Pakistan, it was okay for you to go and to listen to the Christians. You could have meals with the Christians. You could even say that you were a Christian. But to be baptized was a commitment that was subject to death. When you were baptized, it was a commitment that you were taking upon yourself, a new identity. I am a new creature. I have been saved by Jesus Christ. I commit my life to Jesus Christ is what we ask for when we baptize. It's a change of venue. It's a change of direction. It's a change that took place in your heart and in your life. This baptism is important. And Esther was named after this lady who was martyred. Her family came and took her away, and they stoned her. And so Esther's middle name is a reminder to her of the commitment that it means for people who are surrounded by a majority culture that doesn't believe as we do would persecute the minority culture, which was Christian. The commitment that that person made when we make a commitment to be baptized and to say that we are Christians, it doesn't have that connotation yet for us. We are still somewhat in the majority, or we remember when we were in the majority. We believe that we can still get to be the majority culture. But in these cultures, they were the minority culture. And the cause of that to be baptized was significant. There is one God. The Greeks uh, and even the people there in Ephesus believed in a pantheon. There were many gods. The Romans would overthrow a, a, a group of people, and if they had gods, they'd just add them in. That's what they did. There are many gods. There's gods everywhere, little g. And also, there's one God, and he's the father of all. You know, as I was reading this book uh, about borders, you, you know what the number one place that they go to for strength and encouragement that speaks to them the best as immigrants? You know what their favorite passage is? It surprised me too. It was Psalms 20, 29, or 23. Yeah, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah. This idea that God is looking after them. This idea that God is in control, that God is going to provide for their needs, even though if they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It says, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if we were to back up and do kind of a skim of the, fast, of the passages before Ephesians 4, it says in Ephesians 1, 7 to 10, it, it talks about how we were redeemed through Christ's blood. That this was one thing. It didn't happen over and over again. There's no longer a need for the Jewish people to keep bringing their sacrifices. 
It also speaks about, in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, it talks about this gospel of salvation and that it, we have been given as a promise, the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of what is yet to come. There are times, I believe, in all of our Christian walks when we sometimes wonder, wonder whether or not we're saved. Do you ever have that moment of questioning that, that sometimes you just don't quite know where you stand? Yeah? This is one of those places that I go to as a guarantee that I am a Christian because I recognize and I sense the Holy Spirit within my life. Yeah? And that's important for us to remember that God gave to us the Spirit that dwells within us. And for the Gentiles, knowing that it didn't fall from heaven as a meteorite, it actually comes and dwells within them. Not a temple. That's why he talks about our body being a temple where the Spirit of God actually lives. And this inheritance that we have been given, this idea that we are one. And it goes on and it talks about this uh, as well. I'm going to keep moving. That we are saved by grace. It's not by works, which would have been a, a verse that would have been very important to the Jewish people in terms of whether or not they were following the law. Uh, you know, if, if, if you were a, a Jewish person and it was the Sabbath day, you would have to keep track of how many steps you took on that particular day. If you took too many steps, it trips over and all of a sudden you're on a journey and you're not supposed to start your journey on the day of Sabbath. Yeah? It also talks a little bit about how many sticks of firewood you can pick up because pretty soon it's, it's labor. I mean, everything was scrutinized, but it says that we are saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. This idea that all of our sins have been covered by Christ. Now, for me, this is an important part as well. You see, when I became a Christian, I felt as if I had been clean. Kind of like an Etch-a-Sketch, you know, you just shake it and all of the bad marks are gone. Does everybody know what an Etch-a-Sketch is? I don't know if I can use that illustration much more. I don't know. Anyway, yeah? But this idea that everything had been taken care of. And at that moment, I felt so happy. I felt like the burdens... That, you remember what it was like when you first accepted Christ as your Lord, right? Yeah? But then I went home, and I have a little brother, and, and he was a brat, and pretty soon my Etch-a-Sketch was marked up again. And I thought, oh no, I ruined it. I blew it. What happens now? And so I would ask for, for forgiveness, and, and then I would wonder, did I become a Christian? I thought after you became a Christian, you were perfect, right? But the reality is, we know that God knows everything. God is the God who knows the beginning from the end. And when Christ died on the cross, it wasn't just for the sins that were there presently and going backwards to the Garden of Eden, but it was for all eternity. It says that Christ died on the, the cross for the sins of the entire world. All sins were covered by Christ's death on the cross. All right? You still have to ask. You still have to believe. And there are many people out there who haven't accepted Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. And we know that they are dead already because they haven't accepted Christ and take, been brought from death to life. But we know that the blood of Christ is sufficient. All right? Bear with me. So this is what I know. That God knows every sin that you've already committed 
And God knows every sin that you're going to commit. And all of that has already been covered by Christ's righteousness. Now, that is something special, right? That doesn't mean that there, we still have work to, boot, to do, right? We're talking about justification. Sanctification is sort of this working out of our faith where we're continually trying to learn, like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to walk after our faith, our calling, that we are to continue to strive to be like Christ. And we are told in 1 John that if we sin, and we will sin, that we are to ask for confession, or we are to confess our sins, and that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that he will help set things back again, that God is a God who knows where we're going to go and what we're going to do and still loves us. Now, I use this illustration all the time, but I don't know if I've used it here, but I'm sure you forgot, right? My wife and I, we got married in 1978, right? That, that's like a long time ago, right? Yeah? And we've been married, what would that make us, 43 years now? 43, this year will be 44. Right? Will it be 45? 78? Okay. I got to go back to math. Anyway, I often wondered if my wife knew every thought that I was going to have towards her, that I kept my mouth shut, right? right? That she didn't know about, that she didn't hear. Everything that she would hear come out of my mouth that would be disparaging to her or that would be harmful to her. If she knew every moment that I lost my temper, the, everything that I didn't do that I promised to do, everything that I did that harmed her and hurt her soul, if she knew all of that, would she have said yes on that day in 1978? Yeah? But that's what God does. It says, for God so loved the world that he forgave us our sins, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. This idea that he already knows all of these things and he has created this path for us through Jesus Christ where we can have fellowship with him. This idea that this is what God has done. This is our God. There is one God. There is one Father. And he knows all things. And all things are under him. And it goes on and it says um, in Ephesians chapter 2. Boy, that is some small print, right? Yeah. Well, let me tell you what it says. And you can go back and look at this in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And it talks about the fact that there used to be some hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this, this hostility was whether or not their God was the right God. There was one God. And so it goes on and he says, through Jesus Christ, the two have now become one. There is one body. And it goes on and it speaks about, in that passage, it speaks about the fact that the Gentiles once were not a people, but now they are a people. They are the people of God. That God had called them together. And so Paul was writing in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, and calling the Ephesians to come back to make sure that they remember what they have received. He talks to them about the salvation that has been made known to them. 
He talks about Christ being the fulfillment and Christ being the one that bridges the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. It talks about how the body of Christ has now been created, that there is now one body, that the Holy Spirit has been given to all the Jews as well as the Gentiles who believe. He talks about all of these things and he says now we are one body and we are now the minority culture and we are being persecuted and we are to bind together. We are to build one another up and we are to hold tight to our theology because we don't want to become mixed. You know, uh, Ephesus there, I don't know if you can see it up there, it's on the bottom left-hand corner there. This is, these are the seven churches uh, that are spoken about in uh, Revelations chapter 2. And, and forward. But there's a river there that you can kind of see. And that river, I was trying to remember it. I was going to remember it. I forgot it. But anyway, uh, this, this river actually had a little tributary that went there through Ephesus. And Ephesus was a port city. And when the water from the fresh water began to mix uh, with the, the water from the Aegean, see, there was this brackish water, what they call brackish, Right? And so you have this merger, you have this collision of fresh water and salt water. And what Paul was warning them about was that there is one God, one faith, all of these things. He says, right now in our culture, these things are beginning to hammer together. And we have to remember what is fresh water and what is not. These are the things that he talks about. So how did the church at Ephesus do? Well, we know that John wrote about them, and this probably would have been uh, at least 10 years after the writing of Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil that have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. That's a pretty good report card so far, right? Yeah. But he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were, were actually taking and they were trying to find a compromise with society. They were saying, is there any way that our, our, our worship of Artemis and the fertility god could somehow or another be merged with Christianity? Do you think both of those could get along? And if we did that, then we wouldn't be persecuted. If that happened, then we could be friends with people and we could invite people to our events because they wouldn't view us as standing against what they believed. He said, I know that you hate their works, which I also hate. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This idea that they had lost their first love, meaning that somehow or another it had grown stale, that somehow or another it had become routine. The idea that they weren't pursuing it with the same passion they had at the very beginning. It was a call back to nurture what was taking place in your life.
In other passages, it tells us that we are to fan the spirit within us, to, to wake up those embers, to pay attention to what's going on, not to let our faith set idle and to go unattended. And so that's what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. Does it not sound a little bit like our day-to-day to a certain extent with the cultures that are, that are clashing with the majority culture trying to be challenged, uh, the others that want to, to have their way known and to have us follow after their ways rather than the ways of God. And so I just, I'm supposed to throw in a commercial here. So the Central District has already been said, we, we have, uh, there's five districts that we have. There's, there's over 200 churches in the United States. And in the Central District, like we said, we have 39 churches. And we're spread out over eight states. We have Indiana, we have Wisconsin, we have uh, Minnesota, as well as Iowa. Where am I up to now? Uh, We've got North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Montana, and Iowa. I think I got them all. Maybe a duplicate on there. I don't know. Okay? But this idea that what are we here for as a denomination? What is it that we provide? What is it that God would have us to be about? And last year, or, you know, just a few months ago, we had our convention in Jamestown. And the theme of our convention was this word, therefore. The same therefore that we have in, in, Hebrew, in, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 4. And, you know, therefore reminds you to go back and look at what was said. And basically, when you find therefore, you can ask this question that says, what is it therefore, right? You can do that. But it also is a way of saying that the statement that is going to follow is based on the truth that was just established. So, for example, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All right? And then he goes and he says, therefore, because he has received this authority, because he is Lord of all, because he has conquered death, because he has provided the way of redemption, he says, therefore... I have the authority and this is what I want you to do. And I want you to go and make disciples. I am commissioning you to make disciples. It's because of Jesus' authority that has been won on the cross. And so that has become our mission statement. It should be the mission statement of every single church in Matthew 28. Where Jesus says all authority. He is one God. There is only one God. And in verse 19 it says go. You know, sometimes we kind of skip over that word. Uh, you know, my wife sometimes tells me to, you know, go to the store, right? Uh, it's kind of a command. It's not a, it's not a question, right? It's, it's not a request. You know, go to the store. We're out of toilet paper and we don't have puppy food. So go to the store, right? But the fuller meaning of this word go is actually journey. It, it's, it's as you journey through life, make disciples, He says, as you are going through your old age, as you are going through persecution, as you are going through being dispersed into the world, go as you are going and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in the Central District, all of our churches, that's your mission. That's what you're called to do. And in the central district, we have come to a statement about our vision. 
if this is true of our churches and if this is true of every member of those churches, that they are to go and make disciples as they are going based on the authority of Jesus Christ, then the central district we came up with this is that we exist to strengthen our church leaders and pastors, to plant new churches, renew existing churches, and give biblical training and clarity on what it means to be a theologically conservative, evangelical, Anabaptist network of churches on mission. How many English teachers here did we offend with that run-on sentence, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. But basically what it says is that the purpose of our denomination is to pour into you, the local church. We do that by trying to support our pastors and calling out new pastors, planting churches and renewing existing churches. And we focus on our theology because theology matters, especially as the world comes against us, as the fresh water collides with the salt water. It is important for us to stand firm. It's important for us. Theology matters. And it's a call for us to be representatives of Jesus Christ, who has called us to be his representatives. We are his ambassadors. We are his people. Where once we were not a people, now we are the people of God. And so I want to close, and I'm going to steal Paul's prayer. This prayer is found in Ephesians chapter 3. And it begins in verse 14. So let me close with the prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may fill with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.